So I think it's, uh, it's very uh, obvious as to what the theme of the day is today. We saw in our call to worship and the scripture reading that apostasy is a huge threat. False teaching has been the greatest threat to the church since the ascension of Jesus. And no one addresses this issue more thoroughly than Jude does in his brief epistle. So today, we will pick up where we left off last time, having gone through verses 1 through 7. And I know it's been a while since uh, we last did that, probably way back in May. But uh, so we will go over a little bit of a review and try and refresh our memories as to what we learned. If you remember... Last time, in verses 1 through 7, we learned that the author of the epistle is, in fact, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. We also learned that Jude was a preacher who was very concerned about the welfare of his fellow believers and of the apostate teachers that had crept into the fellowship unnoticed. Jude's original intent was to write to the believers about their common salvation But the alarming situation was too important to ignore, so he changed his subject. We also learned who his audience was. They were the called, chosen by God before the foundation of the earth. Jude's purpose was to warn his readers about the dangers of apostate teachers and the heresy they brought in with them by comparing them with examples of apostates in the Old Testament, such as the Israelites who refused to go into the promised land because they did not believe what God had told them, and the fallen angels who did not keep their proper domain, and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah who gave themselves over to sexual immorality. Then, in verse 7, Jude reveals to us the fate that awaits those Old Testament apostates and every unregenerate sinner the vengeance of eternal fire. That leads us to today's lesson in the rest of the book of Jude, verses 8 through 25, and we'll read that. So if you would turn with me to Jude, uh, it's a small, small letter, and we'll start with verse 8. Likewise, all these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, and autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Verse 9. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So, starting with verses 8 through 11. Likewise, all these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Likewise, or in the same way, is an important transition from the previous verses. Apostates typically exhibit ungodly character traits, just like the apostate Israelites, the fallen angels, and the demented population of Sodom and Gomorrah. The evil behavior of these men stems from their dreaming, a term that Jude used to identify the apostates as phony visionaries. False teachers often claim dreams as the authoritative divine source for their revelations or their new truths, which are really just lies and distortions of biblical truth. These claims, these claims allow apostates to substitute their own counterfeit authority for God's true scriptural authority. Dreaming also includes apostates' perverted evil imaginations. Rejecting the word of God, they base their deceptive teachings on the misguided thoughts of their own deluded and demonized minds. In the Old Testament, the term dreamer was virtually synonymous with false prophets. Jude goes on to describe the characteristics of these false dreamers. They defile the flesh. Flesh here refers to the physical body, and the word defile means to stain, to pollute, to contaminate, to soil, or to corrupt. When linked together, defile the flesh refers to moral and physical defilement or sexual sin. Apostate teachers are inevitably immoral, even if their immorality is not publicly known. After all, they have no ability to restrain their lusts, and according to 1 Thessalonians, they are generally characterized as those who live in the passion of lust. They do not know God. Since the apostate teachers love their immorality, it follows that they would reject authority. Because they demand to rule their own lives, apostates refuse to submit to Christ's lordship over them. The reality is that they are much like the scribes and Pharisees whom Jesus confronted in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28. You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jude's third charge against the apostate's character is that they speak evil of dignitaries. In this case, to speak evil of is to speak profanely of sacred matters, including God himself. The false teachers were not just irreverent in a mild sense. They were blasphemers, and specifically of angels. The Greek word for dignitaries is doxa, and is translated as angelic majesties. And by their lawless immorality and insubordination, apostates not only blasphemed the holy angels, they also blaspheme God himself. Jude further demonstrates the seriousness of the apostates' irreverence by contrasting their behavior with that of Michael the archangel. Jude's remarked that Michael, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, is not based on any Old Testament statement. It is apparently based on an extension of the brief account of the burial of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, which says, So Moses the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab, 
according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. The occasion Jude refers to here is obscure, but seems to have been familiar to his readers. The story apparently was well known in oral tradition. According to the tradition, God committed the burial of Moses' body to the angel Michael. But the devil opposed Michael, disputing his right to bury the body because Moses had been a murderer, according to Exodus 2. The fact that no man knows the burial place of Moses because God did not want anyone to preserve his body and venerate it leaves open the possibility of angelic agency in his burial. Another suggestion is that the devil wanted possession of the body in order to entice Israel into idolatrous veneration of it. In any case, the point Jude is making is Michael did not demonstrate irreverence when he dis disputed about the body of Moses. Michael knew that God could grant him power over Satan. Yet he also understood that he was not to act beyond God's prescribed limits. Michael did not dare pronounce against Satan a reviling accusation as if he possessed sovereign dominion over him. In fact, he did nothing more than utter the words, The Lord rebuke you. As powerful as Michael is, only God has sovereign dominion over everything. In contrast to all that, Jude writes, But these, meaning the apostates, speak evil of whatever they do not know. That kind of behavior is evidence of their incredible ignorance and presumption. They speak in contempt of spiritual realities because they do not personally know them. These realities are beyond their ability to perceive and comprehend mentally. This does not mean that these men have never been informed about them, but that the teaching about these spiritual realities is, is not truly intelligible or even vital to them. Lacking the spirit, they are spiritually blind to spiritual realities. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, In their lives, spiritual things and values have no place, and therefore they regard all spiritual things with scorn and with contempt. When challenged with these truths, they boldly rail at them, deride and speak abusively of them. Jude continues in the rest of verse 10, And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. The word and points to the other side of the picture. There is a contrast between the objects of knowledge. Over the spiritual things they do not know stand the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. Spiritual realities are beyond their comprehension, but they readily give themselves to what they understand naturally, like the creatures without reason. Jude compares them to brute beasts, which characterizes their understanding as related to the physical and natural, that which is instinctive, and compares them to the irrational animals who are governed by the instinctive desires the impulses of appetite and passion and sensual pleasure. One can hardly picture a more gross and perverse state than for the controlling impulses of irrational animals to govern men who profess to be Christian. These apostates were like dumb animals who can't speak reasonably because they can't reason. No matter how highly educated apostate teachers are, how profoundly philosophical they think their teaching is, or how many mystical visions and insights they claim to have had, they are still like brute beasts. Like the rest of reprobate humanity, professing to be wise, they became fools. But a life guided by such standards inevitably pays a terrible price. In these things, they corrupt themselves. The meaning of they corrupt themselves is that by surrendering to these instinctive desires like animals, they are bringing ruin upon themselves. The meaning of they, so, so the very things that which they enjoy and freely give themselves to are the very means of their destruction. In the end, they are destroyed.
by means of their own lying and deceiving heresies, which bring upon them the judgment of God. As Jude is contemplating the actions of these apostates, it, it evokes an emotional outburst. Woe to them. Woe was often heard from the mouth of Jesus in the Gospels, but it appears only here in the New Testament epistles. It is again heard amid the judgment scenes of the book of Revelation. The word translated woe is owa'i, and it's an interjection or emotional cry that is essentially like exclaiming, alas, how horrible it will be. It is the pronouncement of ultimate judgment on apostates. The reason for that pronouncement is that they have gone the way of Cain and Balaam and Korah. Cain was the prototypical model of one who departed from God's truth. The fact that Cain's sacrifice was unacceptable exclaims that God had previously told him what constituted a proper sacrifice. Cain knew God required a blood sacrifice, but instead of obeying, he invented his own form of worship. His inappropriate offering revealed the irreverent blasphemy of his heart as he rejected God's revelation and operated by his own self-styled instinct and pride in what he had produced. In light of their similarities, Jude could refer to the apostates as those who have gone the way of Cain. Cain was religious but disobedient, and when God did not accept his offering, he responded in jealous anger, even murdering his obedient brother Abel. The writer of Hebrews comments on this tragic episode. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And then Jude says, they have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. Here, Jude reveals the fundamental motive behind the religious interests of false teachers. They do so for pay. Unlike God's true shepherds, these greedy apostates follow in the air of Balaam and rush headlong into envy and greed. Numbers chapter 22 through 24 relates the story of Balaam. The condensed version goes like this. Balak, king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse Israel. So Balaam devised a plan by which he would lure Israel into idolatry and immorality and ultimately God's judgment. But God used an angel along with Balaam's own donkey to prevent him from carrying out his plan. As a prophet for hire, Balaam is a prime illustration of false teachers, those who love wealth and prestige more than faithfulness and obedience. Number 16 tells the story of Korah, a cousin of Moses. As a Levite, Korah had significant duties in the tabernacle. However, when he was not chosen to be a priest, he became irate. To show his contempt, Korah enlisted Dathan and Abram, along with 250 other men, to join him in a rebellion against Moses' leadership. God, however, responded by terminating the rebellion of Korah in an abrupt and decisive fashion, so that all the apostate rebels perished. Numbers chapter 16 says, The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Tragically, the consequences of the rebellion extended beyond the families of uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abram, and the 250 men. In the aftermath of God's judgment, many of the Israelites, having grown sympathetic to Korah's position, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. As a result, God sent a plague that killed an additional 14,700 Israelites. The plague's widespread devastation marked Korah's extensive influence among the people, 
Many of today's false teachers also have significant followings composed of people who will share their judgment. Yet like Korah and his supporters, all apostate rebels will eventually experience God's wrath. That brings us to verses 12 and 13. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. In verse 12, when Jude starts the verse with the word these, he's not talking about the Old Testament examples he used in verses 8 through 11. He, this is the second time he pointed to the apostate teachers that he is warning his readers about as these. His repetition of the, that word displays the continuing onslaught of denunciation against the wicked apostates. We've already gotten a glimpse of their flawed character in the previous verses, but now Jude is using a series of brief metaphors, all drawn from nature. Our Lord Jesus himself used natural phenomena in many of his parables. Jude is following that pattern by comparing apostates with five natural phenomena. In the New King James Version, it lists the first one as spots on their love feasts and basically means blemishes which mar something pure. The NASB renders it, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. Both versions depict stumbling blocks and are equally effective. The Greek word for hidden reefs is spilades. It occurs only here in the New Testament. Its common meaning from that time was a rock washed by the sea, hidden reef. Like those hidden reefs, the apostates had hidden themselves under the surface in the love feasts of the early church. And like those hidden reefs which tear into the hulls of ships from beneath, the apostates could tear into unsuspecting people with their lies and their heresy and their blasphemy. These love feasts were very similar to the contemporary potluck dinner held on the Lord's Day. Believers would gather to worship, hear the Word of God, celebrate communion, and then share their affection for one another in a meal, much like we do here at Providence Bible Church after each service. It is clear that these feasts were observed in the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 33 and 34 says, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. These feasts were apparently held in the evening at the conventional time of the evening meal, and were intended to satisfy hunger. The food was brought by the various members according to ability and was shared with those who had little or nothing to bring. They were held in the home where the local believers assembled since uh, separate church buildings were not used until much later. At first, these congregational meals were concluded with the observance of the Lord's Supper. Although intended to foster mutual love and sharing among believers, the situation at Corinth makes it clear that the love feasts offered ready opportunity for conduct that destroyed rather than fostered the sense of Christian brotherhood. Because of the abuses that arose, these fellowship meals were later separated from the observance of the Lord's Supper. Jude's words give no indication that the observance of the Lord's Supper was involved. In any case, we now see that the apostates lacked any functioning conscience or sense of conviction, and being adept hypocrites, they were able to feast with believers without fear. The fact that their actions do terrible damage to others is of no concern to them. While the love feast was designed for believers to care for one another, the false teachers were guilty 
of caring only for themselves. Their only interest was self-interest and self-gratification at the expense of anyone else, which may suggest that these men were actually leaders in their churches. When we get to verse 16, we will see that it implies that these men were vocal in sharing their views, which may indicate some form of leadership in the church. Jude is condemning their brazen self-indulgence and revealing their true character. The next metaphor that Jude uses is, they are clouds without water carried along by winds. In normal weather cycles, clouds regularly produce the anticipation of rain, but clouds without water show up with just the promise of rain and then fail to deliver. In Proverbs 25, verse 14, Solomon said, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. Apostate teachers promised to bring the true spiritual blessing and refreshment from God, but they do not deliver on that promise. Jude compared them to clouds carried along by the winds, always promising rain but failing to produce it. The phrase without water is translated from the Greek, anudros, which also occurs in Luke 11 in reference to the wanderings of evil spirits through dry and barren places. By describing false teachers in the same way that Luke describes demons, Jude reiterated the connection between the apostates and their satanic sources. Right there, like waterless clouds, they prove themselves to be spiritually barren, offering nothing that nurtured the soul. The added phrase, carried along by winds, indicates that it is unsafe to follow such men. It can be compared to a ship being blown off its course by hurricane-force winds. Not only are these men blown off their own course, but anyone who follows them will be led astray from the path of truth. Going further in verse 12, Jude says they are autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. The phrase autumn trees without fruit pictures the disappointing reality of a barren harvest. He called them doubly dead. First, they are fruitless because there is no life in them. Second, they are uprooted, dead at the very core. They are spiritually dead now, and eventually they will be physically dead. Being uprooted, they are like trees that have come out of the ground, disconnected from the life-giving source of water and nutrients. Jesus tells us in Matthew 15, verse 13, But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. And again, in chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus says, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And again, in chapter 7, verses 17 through 20, he says, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So we see that such people produce no life-changing fruit, neither in themselves or in others. So all the characteristics of these apostates lead to a natural climax, fruitless, lifeless, and rootless. The next metaphor Jude uses is raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, which paints another vivid picture of these men. It portrays the restless and unrestrained nature of these men like the continually surging waves. These apostates are restless and untamed in their appetite and passions, constantly dashing themselves against the divinely ordained barriers of order and morality. The true character of these men manifests itself in what they produce, foaming out their own shame. Foaming out, in the Greek, is epaphrazanta, and pictures the waves in uninterrupted succession, dashing themselves upon the beach, leaving behind the debris and filth carried on their crest.
The fulfillment of these men's lives is the picture in Isaiah chapter 57, verses 20 and 21. The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. In the aftermath of a storm, the seashore is littered with debris and mire. So these men, by their un unrestrained activities, exposed to public view their own shame, the various shameful acts which they commit, like the useless and unsightly litter left on the beach, so in the eyes of the beholders are the deeds of these men. They are a reproach to the church and repulsive to God and his holiness. Jude's final metaphor in verse 13 describes these apostates as wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Wandering stars does not refer to heavenly bodies that continuously shine and have fixed orbits. Most likely the expression signifies a meteor or a shooting star that flashes across the sky in an uncontrolled moment of brilliance and then disappears forever into the black darkness. Apostates often appear for a short time on the stage of Christianity. They promise lasting spiritual light and direction, but deliver nothing but an erratic, aimless, worthless flash. The utter blackness and darkness of hell has been reserved for them forever. All these accurate descriptions and comparisons with the past and graphic analogies to nature all paint a vivid portrait of apostates. False teachers are hypocritical deceivers and immoral sinners. They misrepresent the truth about the gospel of Christ and twist the teachings of scripture. And what is the result of this immorality? Jude goes on to tell us, in verses 14 and 15. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Again, the phrase, these men, refers to the apostates whom Judah talked about in the previous section, the false visionaries, the deviators of spiritual authority, the revilers, the brute beasts who behave by carnal instinct, the hidden reefs, the waterless clouds, the dead and uprooted trees, the wild sea waves, and the wandering stars headed for eternal blackness. This prophecy that Jude speaks of about these men is a very old one. Enoch lived before the flood. In fact, he was the great-grandfather of Noah. By referencing Enoch, Jude magnified the motivation behind God's judgment on apostasy, while also reinforcing the certainty of it. Although this prophecy is not recorded in the Old Testament, Jude was clearly inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it because it was familiar, historically accurate, and supported the overall message that Jude is trying to make clear to his readers. Jude took the quote from the book of First Enoch, with which his first century re readers would have been very well acquainted with. The book of Enoch was regarded as one of the most remarkable examples of Jewish apocryphal literature and it exerted a strong and widespread influence on Jewish and early Christian literature. Even though the book, like other books including The Assumption of Moses, from which Jude probably quoted in verse 9, where Satan disputed over the body of Moses with the archangel Michael, was not part of the Old Testament canon. Yet since it was accurate, it was acceptable for Jude to use it to bolster his argument. Even the Apostle Paul cited non-biblical sources to make legitimate spiritual points in his teaching. When Jude referenced the prophecy, he clearly accepted it as historical fact. Enoch was in the seventh generation from Adam. He was a hero to the Jewish people, 
Like the prophet Elijah, later he went to heaven without dying. Genesis 5, verse 24 says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch's prophecy and judgments present three certainties regarding God's judgment on apostasy. The first certainty is that the Lord will come. In some versions, it is rendered as the Lord came. The verb translated came suggests Enoch's vision was so startling and convincing that he spoke as if the judgment had already occurred. The book of Enoch did not name the one who comes, but Jude's use of the phrase, the Lord, is the Greek word kyrios, and that makes it clear that the returning one is none other than the glorified Lord Jesus. His return was the living hope of the early church. The apostate teachers were attacking the doctrine of Christ's return, and Jude's reminder would reinforce all other biblical teaching on that matter. The second certainty is the Lord is not coming alone. He will be accompanied by ten thousands of his saints, which could refer to believers or angels or both. Ten thousands in the Greek is muriasin, and literally means myriads, which means a countless amount. As a specific number, the term means 10,000, but often the plural was used to denote an innumerable multitude, as in this case. The phrase, his saints, marks the relationship of this multitude to the returning Lord, as belonging to him and devoted to his service. The designation saints or holy ones denotes the moral character of these angels, but the term is broad enough also to include the believers who will appear with their Lord in glory, according to Colossians 3 and 1 Thessalonians 3. The third certainty is the Lord will come with a definite purpose to execute judgment upon all and to convict the ungodly meaning all those who have completely disregarded God's law. The Greek word for convict, elegko, means to expose, rebuke, or prove guilty. When the Lord returns, the sins of the ungodly will be exposed and the verdict rendered accordingly. Their final sentence will be eternal punishment in hell. All the ungodly includes the apostate teachers. Because God is a righteous judge, he must punish them because of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The fact that Enoch uses the term ungodly four times to describe the apostates exposes their sinful attitude. They refuse to have a proper reverence for God. All sinners like the immoral, irreverent, and blasphemous false teachers, are storing up divine wrath and punishment for themselves in the day of judgment. They will be punished because of all their ungodliness. Both their works and their words betray the wickedness of their hearts. In this passage, Jude affirms the promise, the participants, and the purpose of Lord's coming in judgment. And so he addresses the who, what, where, and why of Christ's return. The only question that he does not answer is the when. And the answer to that lies solely with God. And then in verse 16, Jude is looking particularly at the apostates' sins of their mouths. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words flattering people to gain advantage. I like how he again uses the word these, like an accusing finger, once more pointing out these ungodly men. This verse is a concluding touch in the denunciation that he began way back in verse 8. It is a summary of the character and conduct of these evil men. The word grumblers occurs only here in the New Testament, and it's the same term the Septuagint uses to describe Israel's murmurings against God in the Old Testament. 
It depicts them as individuals dominated by a smoldering discontent which expresses itself not in loud, outspoken outcries, but in muttered undertones. The term generally denotes whispered expressions of discontent. Jude does not indicate against whom the grumbling of these men is directed, but they obviously expressed their dissatisfaction with anything and everything that was not according to their liking. This type of evil is prohibitive, according to Philippians 2, verse 14. Would you please turn there with me now to Philippians 2, verse 14. Philippians 2, verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So we see by this passage that complaining and grumbling can be a deterrent from living the true Christian life. The use of, word, use of the word complainers indicates their discontent with the condition of life which God has assigned to them, not only blaming him for this, but for the moral restrictions which he had imposed on them and upon all mankind. The phrase, walking according to their own lusts, gives us the real cause of their discontent and points to their standard of conduct. The verb walking denotes a planned course of action. Their course of conduct is governed not by the word of God, but by their lusts, their own sinful desires and cravings. The inevitable result is dissatisfaction with what life brings them. The rest of verse 16 says they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. The arrogant self-confidence of these men manifests itself in their loud speech. Their mouth talks big as they speak great swelling words. They inflated themselves with an elaborate, sophisticated religious vocabulary that had outward spiritual tone and attractiveness, but had no divine truth and substance. The purpose of their noisy talk was for the purpose of flattering people to gain advantage. The apostates were good at telling people what they wanted them to hear, cleverly manipulating others for their own gain. They certainly did not care about proclaiming God's truth for the edification of their hearers. And that brings us to verses 17 through 19. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own godly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. The phrase, but you, beloved, marks the shift from, from Jude's denunciation of the apostates to his loving exhortations to the faithful members. By Jude using the term beloved, underlines his sharp distinction between the two groups. It assures the readers that, despite his fierce denunciation of the apostates, he maintains a deep personal affection for them. His strong denunciation of the intruders has been prompted by his concern for his beloved's spiritual welfare. And as Jude's letter draws to its conclusion, one crucial question arises. How can we as believers practically contend for the truth so that we will be victorious in our day of rampant falsehood? In other words, how can we personally apply Jude's cautions regarding apostasy to our own lives and ministries? To be sure, Jude's warning is unmistakable, and it clearly demands a response. But what does that response look like, and where does it begin? Well, Jude compelled his beloved readers to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ who predicted the coming of apostasy. 
So Jude is telling his readers to remember the truths they had already heard from the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, in our time, are to do the same. Remember what we, what we have already heard and read, and the only way to do that is to stay in the Word and study it so we can discern any false teaching that comes along. The Lord himself was the first one in the New Testament to warn against false teachers. And Matthew 7, verse 15, warns us, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The New Testament epistles are filled with the apostles' warnings and apostates' teaching. Over and over, Jesus and the apostles were saying that false teachers would infiltrate the church and oppose the truth. Considering that, Jude quoted Peter's warning in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. In the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. The last time refers to the period between Christ's first and second comings. In 2 Peter, Peter tells us that the mockers scoffed at the truth of Christ's return. And here, Jude implied that they mocked the law of God because of their grumbling. Both ideas, of course, are parallel, since those who mocked the law of God will also mock Christ's return. They do not want to be accountable to the divine judge for their sins, either in the present or the future. These mockers will walk according to their own ungodly lusts. Jude had already established that fact in the previous verses of 4, 15, and 16. They will give in to their passions because they have no capacity for holiness. Since their hearts have never been transformed, all they can do is pursue their own ungodly desires. And then verse 19 says, These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. Sensual in Greek is suchikoi, and literally means soulish, that, that which pertains, pertains to the soul. It depicts them as men who are governed only by their soul or heart or mind, the self-conscious life which animate their bodies. And they can't do a thing about it because they are devoid of the Holy Spirit. They are unregenerate, and so they cause divisions in the church. Whatever their false teaching was, it was believed by some of the congregation and was destroying its inner unity. The hallmark of a healthy church is like-mindedness among the members. Satan knows this also, and so it is a very common tactic he uses by sending his agents into the church to divide and conquer. Following his final description of the apostates in verse 19, Jude continues to give pastoral guidance to his readers. In verses 20 and 21, he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. True believers need to exercise discernment and protect themselves from being led astray. In order to do that, we must remain on the path of sanctification. Doing this involves, first, building ourselves up on our most holy faith. We must become doctrinally strong if we would recognize error and effectively fight the battle for truth. The phrase, building yourselves up, gives us the sense that it is imperative it is not optional. The idea of building up refers to personal edification and spiritual growth, and it implies the establishment of the firm foundation of sound doctrine. As it says way back in verse 3, the most holy faith is the objective body of biblical truth, not the subjective personal faith which all people exercise which is a very unreliable, unstable foundation. Growing in the most holy faith, or edification, centers on studying the Word of God and learning to apply it. In, facts, in, in Acts 
20, verse 32, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to proclaim his word, which results in the building up of or the sanctification of the body of Christ. The next element of sanctification involves praying in the Holy Spirit. That does not refer to speaking in tongues, but to praying for that which is consistent with the Spirit's will, his desires, directives, and decrees. Although his will is revealed through the plain commands of Scripture, we as believers do not always know how to practically apply it to the various issues of life. Therefore, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us before the Father with genuine sympathy and inexpressible fervor. Of course, the Spirit's will and the Father's will, and even praying in Jesus' name, are one and the same. When we pray in the Holy Spirit, we submit ourselves to Him. We rest on His wisdom, we seek His will, and we trust in His power. As we who believe pursue sanctification, we must also keep ourselves in the love of God. This is a vitally important principle, and it means to remain in the sphere of God's love or the place of his blessing. On a practical level, it means that we must stay obedient to God, since divine blessing is promised only within the sphere of obedience. Jesus told his apostles, in John 15. In fact, why don't we go to John 15 and read that. John 15, verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide, abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So we see that keeping his commandments has everything to do with abiding in the love of Jesus. That doesn't mean that we don't fall short. But if we are living a life of constantly disobeying his commandments, our salvation may be questionable. And finally, in verse 21, as we pursue sanctification, we Christians must be looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. The present participle looking for in the Greek is prosdekomenoi, and denotes an attitude of eager expectancy, a readiness to welcome that which is awaited. This blessed hope of spending eternity in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ keeps present trials and tribulations in true perspective. One commentator puts it this way, and I quote, It will keep the faithful from evil by adjusting their sense of value, fixing their attention upon the right things, and filling them with joyful hope, end quote. This hope awaits the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy that will be bestowed upon them by the one whom believers now acclaim as our Lord Jesus Christ. They have already experienced his multiplied mercy, as we remember from verse 2, and are assured that he will continue to extend mercy to them while they await his return. They are aware that none lives without sin, and that in that day, believers will need the divine compassion that pities the needy and acts to meet their need. The expression is a reminder that salvation is never a matter of personal merit or achievement, but totally a matter of mercy based upon the atonement that Jesus wrought on the cross. On that final day when Jesus returns, his final mercy to us will be the joy and fullness of eternal life. 
as we experience the resurrection and glorification of our bodies. Having counseled his readers about their own security amid apostasy, Jude now urges them to engage in saving activities on behalf of the victims of apostasy. They themselves, being the recipients of God's mercy, should diligently seek to be his agents of mercy toward those who are weak and who are deceived by the apostates. They should be occupied not only with thoughts of their own security and maturity, but they should also come alongside those who were affected by the apostates. And so verses 22 and 23 say, And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by flesh. Making a distinction used here basically means having doubt. Like wolves stalking sheep, false teachers prey on weak people, people who are vacillating, unsure, and mired in doubt. Those who are strong must show mercy to these souls as they are torn between truth and error, commitment and non-commitment. Showing mercy does not mean ignoring the seriousness of false teaching or commending the weak for their doubt, but it does mean exhorting such people with the truth in meekness and patience, always being diligent to present the gospel to them before they are permanently caught in heresy. And then verse 23 says, But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Sometimes Christians may have the opportunity to actually reach out to the most committed apostates. True believers are not only to reach out to the people affected by the apostasy, but to the apostates themselves. These heretics are deeply deceived individuals who are very committed to their own false teaching. In some cases, they are even teachers of their heretical doctrine and leaders within a false system. When reaching out to such people, we who know the truth must proceed with the utmost caution. The phrase, with fear, gives us an awareness that getting too close to corrupt apostate teaching could result in somehow being influenced by those lies. And how are we to save these individuals? by pulling them out of the fire, some versions say, snatching them out of the fire. The Greek word for snatching is harpazo, which gives us a strong image of seizing something or taking something or somebody by force. As Jude wrote this letter, he apparently knew of some who had already been drawn into the false doctrines of the apostates. He pictured them as having been singed by the very fire of hell a foreshadowing of the eternal infernal that would one day engulf them if they continued to embrace false teaching. The only way to rescue such people is to crush their false doctrine before it is too late. And this can be done only by presenting the truth of the gospel. Jesus modeled this principle perfectly during his earthly ministry. To those who were confused, unsure, and filled with doubts, he patiently and gently presented the gospel. But to those committed to false teaching, such as the scribes and Pharisees and their followers, he bluntly warned of the gravity of their lost condition. And so in the last half of the verse, Jude writes, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Garment in the Greek is chiton and refers to the clothing that people of that day wore under their tunics, actually their underwear. Some versions say polluted by the flesh, which means to be stained by bodily function. So just as no one wants to handle someone else's dirty underwear and be defiled physically, we should also be extremely wary of getting too close to the spiritual defilement of those corrupted by false teachers especially when bringing the gospel to committed apostates, Christians must exercise great caution and wisdom. In Matthew 10, verse 16, Jesus tells us, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. For those of us who love Christ, 
our spiritual survival and prosperity, especially in times of growing apostasy, is going to require perseverance and care. We must be defensive, remembering what Scripture teaches about the presence of false teachers. And we must also be proactive, diligently practicing the disciplines of Bible study, prayer, and obedience as we eagerly anticipate Christ's return. Finally, we must exercise bold discernment in taking the offensive and reaching out to apostates and those influenced by their heresies by presenting the simple but powerful truth of the gospel. And so, we finally come to verses 24 and 25, which is the doxology. And for some of us who don't know what doxology is, it's just a, a spontaneous outburst of praise and glorifying God for who he is and what he does. And it goes like this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Jude's closing doxology is highly acclaimed as one of the grandest in all the New Testament. It is the fitting end of the epistle, eloquently reminding his readers that their true security lies in the sovereign power of God. Starting with verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. The people of God are perfectly able to fall into temptation, into sin, into errors and mistakes, and even into total apostasy, if it were not for God's divine power, because we are unable to keep ourselves. Adam, in his state of innocence, could not keep himself from falling, nor could the angels, many of whom fell, and the rest were preserved by the grace of God. How much less can we, as imperfect, sinful people, keep ourselves from stumbling? We lack both the skill and the power to do it. No one short of Jesus Christ can keep and preserve God's people. Without the assurance and confidence of being kept in eternal security, the Christian life would give way to doubt, worry, and fear as believers wondered if their salvation was permanent. The thought of giving up everything to follow Christ would hardly seem worth the cost if all might be lost in the end. Because God is perfectly faithful, supremely powerful, and infinitely loving, he will not allow his children to fall away from saving faith or defect from the gospel so as to be lost again in their sins. Not only is he willing to preserve believers, he is also able to preserve them to the end. The second half of verse 24 says, And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory, with exceeding joy. Because Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life and then shed his blood on the cross for us, he is now the representative in heaven of his people and will be on the last day, presenting them to the Father, faultless, even though they have sinned and were wretchedly guilty and filthy in their natural state. And even though they are prone to backsliding and guilty of so much sin, they will be presented by Christ in perfect holiness, in complete righteousness, in shining robes of immortality and glory, and they will be presented with, a, presented with exceeding joy, joy in themselves for being delivered from sin and sorrow and every enemy, exceeding joy for the glory and happiness they will enjoy. They will have joy in those who brought the gospel to them. Even the angels will have joy, for if they rejoice at the conversion of men, how much more at their glorification? And best of all, they will have joy with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As Jude ends his epistle, he offers praise for the present salvation and future glorification of believers in verse 25. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. Amen. Only God, through Jesus Christ, can accomplish the work of a Savior. As a result, 
Jude reserved the highest praise for the Son. Glory summarizes all of God's powerful, radiant, and divine attributes. Majesty signifies the absolute reign of the Father and the Son. Dominion refers to the extent of his might and act of rule over all. And authority denotes Christ's supreme right and privilege to do as he wills. This divine supremacy over everything in the universe encompasses all eternity, both now and forever. Because he is all-powerful and because his glorious name is at stake, God's promise to preserve us, his saints, and to one day present us blameless before his throne can be trusted without reservation. To doubt the reality of that promise is to doubt God himself, but to embrace it is to find endless joy and never-ending comfort. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word is truth, and it glorifies you and it brings you worship, and it brings us, your children, the benefit of edification. Lord, this short letter of Jude's is a powerful warning to the church in all ages. We ask that you would give us the wisdom to heed this warning, and we ask for the discernment to recognize the false teachers of our time, and we ask for the courage and wisdom to confront them with the truth of your gospel and to protect the believers who may be drawn into their seductive teaching. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and all your blessings, and thank you for preserving us to the end. So we will be presented to you faultless, despite our sinfulness. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.